Thank you so much. Good morning. Next week and weeks to come, we're going to be looking carefully at a new book of the Bible to explore together and learn from, and that'll be the book of James. And I was praying that God would give me some insight as to how to introduce that book in a way that provides insight into the writer of that book. And my thought went towards a chapter in the book of Acts where you will find James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, having to moderate an assembly that's debating, clarifying, specifying just what is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What truly constitutes salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Acts chapter 15 is the watershed chapter of the entire book of Acts. And what you and I are going to find is that when various presentations are made with regard to the way in which God is working in this world, at a strategic point in the debate, James will step forward, summarize the various views, point people to the scriptures, clarify the issue, and allow for people to understand the true essence of salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ's finished work, his work alone. So hopefully you found your way to Acts, the 15th chapter. What I'd like to do is to begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 5, and it's going to serve as the beginning, the launching pad that directs us into this chapter and paves the way for our future Sundays together we'll be looking at the book of James together. But in chapter 15, verse 1 of Acts, we find these words. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, what we want to do is to figure out, and how does this relate to 2015 living? How do we take the issues that are here and connect them to the issues we face today? And that's our task in our time together as we now look to our Lord in prayer. Your word is inspired. The scriptures are God-breathed. 
the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives are yours. And you build this bridge from the history of the time period in which this was penned into the 2015 living of today, guided by the Spirit. This is how we approach you in your word. We're thanking you, Father, for the tremendous privilege we have to sing to you, to give tithe and offering to you, and then to take your word given from you to us and allow it to saturate our minds and to make a difference in the way in which we live our lives. There are going to be spiritually curious people in these four services today grappling with issues that at this point perhaps they've not been able to resolve. But you are the great resolver. You bring resolution through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We praise you for that. And in a world of confusion, confusion about salvation, confusion about creation, confusion about sexuality, confusion about ethics, confusion about personal identity, what we find is true resolution and clarification in your word. We turn to you, and you would have us then turn to your word. So, Father, in these minutes together, as we're pondering the significance of this incredible chapter and how it paves the way to our future Sundays of study, warm these hearts and engage these minds. Shape these wheels. Come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. What we find here in Acts chapter 15 are advocates who are in essence saying the bill was not quite paid in full. So you're going to have to add good works to Christ's work in order to gain acceptance from God. It also seems as if they're saying, and by the way, leave a tip before you leave. But when you and I look at what is occurring here, the tremendous debate which is unfolding in this 15th chapter centers on the whole question of, is Christ's work on the cross sufficient? Or do I need to add my works to Christ's work? The issue is significant and it's central to every single person's spiritual well-being. Now, in these opening verses, you and I are going to see a debate unfold. A debate that still pertains to life today. And what I want to do is to draw out three significant guidelines in these verses that help you and me, equip you and me, to be able to handle the challenges to the biblical gospel that might present themselves on any given day of the week. Let's check them out. Then number one, down through verse one, down through verse five, when the biblical gospel is being challenged, join me. Examine the deviations from the gospel carefully. 
Ask yourself, where is that person parting from what God has shared in his word? Because there is a sense where everybody enters into this world with their idea of a gospel. Alternative gospels worldwide, but what is God's gospel as revealed through his word? That's the question that we've got to be able to answer. And so now, in Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas have ministering. And they've been ministering effectively in Gentile territories, increasingly. They've come back with a powerful report of what God is doing. God is at work. But in verse 1, some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, next to verse 1, note very carefully, you might even want to jot this down, the conditions that they are setting. We are told in the Scriptures that grace is unconditional. But what these people are doing is that they are producing an alternative, what might be described here as conditional grace, where you've got to add to what Christ has done. Unless you are circumcised, but notice they appeal to the Scriptures. A religious unbeliever can appeal to the Scriptures to try to substantiate their view, though their understanding of the Scriptures is insufficient, inadequate, inaccurate. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, notice the absolute, you cannot be saved. Now what the religionist does is that he or she says, in essence, Christ's work is insufficient. So we must add our good works to Jesus Christ's work. But is that what the Scriptures teach? Now, if you are standing there in the midst of this council debate in verse 1, where would you begin? How would you respond? And what challenges would you produce to get people to start rethinking their assumptions? They're appealing to... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why? Where? How? When they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the issue at stake now is what is the essence, the real nature of true salvation? What would you do with that? Here's the thought. These people would have recognized that Moses, inspired by God, penned Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, wouldn't they? In the book of Genesis, you and I are told that in chapter 15, Abraham was justified by faith. He was declared righteous by God. Two chapters later, in Genesis 17, we find Abram circumcised. Didn't happen at the same time. Circumcision did not happen prior to being declared righteous, simultaneous with being declared righteous. No, 
It took place subsequent to being declared righteous. In other words, if I've got my math right, uh, the number 15 occurs before the number 17. Which means then, if Genesis 15 occurred before Genesis 17... In Genesis 15, Abram was declared righteous. It was not until Genesis 17 that he was circumcised. Therefore, what we find now is a sequence being set up by Moses. So that if you're standing there in this tremendous debate over the essence of salvation, you would be able to say, but wait a second. Wait a second. Abram was declared righteous without having been circumcised. That came later. The religionist respects Scripture. What the believer has to do is to help the religionist understand Scripture. And what is the essence of what this is all about? You see, what they're doing is that they are adding to Christ's finished work. I was walking down a, uh, an aisle at a grocery store, and one of the people from one of our services, she was standing there with her children around her, and she was looking at a box. It might have been a box of cereal. I couldn't quite tell. And she spotted me, and I said, hi, and I said, what's up? And she said, I'm, I'm looking carefully at this box. I want to make certain there are no additives. Walked a little further after a brief conversation. I turned around and pondered that. And I thought there's tremendous value in this day and age, 2015, for believers, Christians who are immersing themselves in God's Word, to be able to discern in this world of ours where there are additives to the Scriptures and why people are producing additives when it comes to the matters of the cross of Jesus Christ. In essence, it's born in spiritual pride, saying, but I can add something more to what Jesus Christ has done, when in reality what God the Father has done in eternity past is set up a sovereign plan of redemption where it will be exclusively rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. No additives needed. But you see, this world is a grocery store of religiosity, of Hinduism and Islam and others. And what I find is that the supplements to the cross eventually become the substitutes for the cross. Now, this church council, they were going to have to begin to wrestle with some Challenging, challenging matters. When they look at Gentiles being saved, would they be able to embrace the fact that it's conversion without circumcision, faith in Jesus without the works of the law, commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? These were the issues of the hour. And what you and I have got to be able to do by clearly understanding and defining the essence of the gospel is to recognize where there are additives in this fallen world. Now, you've determined 
based upon their argument of the custom of Moses, that Moses himself had positioned Abraham being declared righteous two chapters prior to Abram being circumcised. Now you move on in your thinking. And after, in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had, well, no small dissension and debate with them. They knew what was really worth debating. And Christians are able to discern, is that superficial or is that primary when it comes to matters of true debate? They had no small dissension debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. God has a way of sovereignly encouraging you, encouraging me, when we have to resolve the ultimate issues for other people to process. So God has set an itinerary for them. In verse 3, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. And now you think about that Samaritan woman that Jesus Christ had ministered to and discipled in that full spectrum of discipleship. And you think about what's coming our way here, and you look carefully at the fact that even Philip was able to minister in that setting of Samaria. And now here we go again, and through Phoenicia and Samaria come Paul and Barnabas describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And what happens? It brought great joy to all the brothers. And when you and I are dealing with the essence of the gospel, when we are dealing with true Christianity, when we are dealing with unmerited favor, we are dealing then with joy. Because this is not rooted in happiness. It is rooted in joy. They have joy deeper than happiness. Happiness is based on externals. Joy based on internals. If your happiness doesn't happen the way you happen to want your happiness to happen, you won't happen to have happiness. But you see, here is joy. And it comes from the well of gospel presentation. So in verse 4, they came to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Arms wide open. God has been prepping them through the itinerary of getting them there. And notice what is stated by them in verse 4. They declared all that God had done with them. They don't talk about what they have done for God. When they arrive on the scene, it's first things first. It begins with God. And so they talk about all that God had done with them. They have already then, through personal experience, begun to explain clearly to the people that have remained firm in Jerusalem the grace of God. But in verse 5, interesting now, they're true believers but they've got weak theology. Some believers described here who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, and here it is again, it is necessary to circumcise them, speaking of the Gentiles, and to order them, there is another absolute being laid before them to keep the law of Moses. And now you've worked through 
chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, and the sequence where Abram was justified by faith, declared righteous by God in chapter 15. It wasn't until 17 that he was circumcised, and yet here are these people saying, it's got to happen. It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law, you see, of Moses. What do you do with people who think this way? Examine the deviations of the gospel carefully. Work with what God had said sequentially. It happened during the time of the Reformation where there were a group of people that were heading off to a council known as the Council at Vims. They were told, bring back with you the little word sola, or else dare not come back at all. The Latin word for sola, we get solitude, don't we? We get soloist, don't we? It carries with the idea of aloneness. What we are saying here is that it is Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone. So now we add nothing to what the gospel presents, but embrace what the scriptures teach. So when the biblical gospel is being challenged, Examine the deviations from the gospel carefully. And as you try to understand where that person's coming from, you might want to ask, is this person oriented towards a secular unbelief? Because the secularist believes that what Christ did on the cross was unnecessary. They put their trust in supposed good nature. But the religionist, the religious unbeliever, views Christ's work on the cross as insufficient. They don't argue for their good nature like the secularist does, but they do argue for their good works. And now what we've got to be able to do is to clarify the issues and say, sola. Jesus is the great soloist. It is Christ alone. There's a second guideline now that flows out of this, from verse 6 down to verse 11. Secondly, when the biblical gospel is being challenged, present the evidences for the gospel clearly. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood. What Peter is about to do now is to provide three significant evidences that salvation comes by grace alone. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. The first evidence there is that God has made a choice. Peter did not make this choice. God made this choice. And he made this choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Key word, 
hear, keyword believe, and now they have to process the truth and the essence of what does the gospel truly entail. My mind goes back to a story G. Campbell Morgan told. A soldier who said he could and would give anything to believe that God would forgive his sins, but said, quote, I cannot believe he will forgive me if I just turn to him. It's too cheap. Unquote. Now, Dr. Morgan was a tremendous expositor of God's word and a wise man. And Dr. Morgan said to him, Sir, you were working in the mine today. How did you get out of that pit? The man answered, The way I usually do. I got into the cage and was pulled to the top. And how much did you pay to come out of that pit? Morgan asked. I didn't pay anything. Weren't you afraid to trust yourself to that cage? Wasn't it too cheap? The man said, no. It was cheap for me, but it cost the company a lot of money to sink that shaft. And then the man saw the light, Morgan tells us. That it was the infinite price paid by the Son of God for our salvation, which comes to us by faith and not by anything that we can do. And so, yes, a price is paid. The question is, and who pays the price? And who truly has the resources to pay this debt? This is the issue now before them. With their spiritual wallets in hand, Peter stands up. And his first argument, his first evidence of this whole matter is that God has made the choice. Not us. And the second evidence is found in verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. God made a choice, verses 6 and 7. God sent his Spirit, verse 8. Notice that God is the great spiritual cardiologist. He understands the true condition of your heart and mine. In verse 8, God who knows the heart. That's why I'm not fond of the phrase, just speak from your heart. Because very clearly, number one, I don't truly know my heart, and my heart is deceitful by nature. Therefore, I want to make absolutely certain that the Holy Spirit has complete sovereign control of my heart. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them. How? By giving them the Holy Spirit. And now, here here is Peter, a Jew, and he's saying, the Gentiles have received this as well and believe. And he adds this phrase, powerful at this point, just as he did to us. God made a choice. We didn't. God gave the Spirit. We didn't. Thirdly, God has made no distinction in a world that continues to grapple with this issue. 
verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts, how? Not by their works, not by my works, by faith. End of verse 9. Putting your faith not in your works, putting your faith not in your nature, putting your faith in Christ's work, Christ's nature, the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Now what we've got here is the tension between true gospel and false gospel. The true gospel is unmerited favor. The false gospel argues for merited favor, merited grace. But you can't produce that contradiction and make it work. There is no such thing as merited grace. And yet in verse 1, they were arguing, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. But this is unconditional. And so now you hold up your box of gospel and you look very carefully to try to understand are there attitudes here? And you're about to pull out your wallet before God and pay a bill and he lets us know, Tetelestai, it is finished. So said Jesus on that cross. And nothing more can be added to what he did. And there are these ambassadors being sent to a council at the Reformation time period and they're told, don't come back unless you bring the word sola with you, from which we get so, solitude or soloist. And we're saying that the great singer of the cross sang the gospel solo for you and for me. God has made a choice, verses 6 and 7. God has sent his spirit, verse 8. God has made no distinction, verse 9 through 11. And now he challenges you and me to understand this and to appreciate what Paul himself wrote. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And they are trying to rebuild the wall. My wife and my daughter-in-law and I were sitting down, I think it was Friday night, and caught a late news edition of Megyn Kelly. And they had a reporter out on the streets of particular college campuses, and he was posing questions, and he was holding a picture of a former president up for them to try to be able to uh, discern who it is, identify. It was Ronald Reagan. And time and time again, these students could not identify Reagan. Finally, there's this great scene that flashes before us. And there's Reagan, a picture of him. And he's standing before the Berlin Wall. And my mind goes back to a statement that was uttered at that wall by him. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And then I compare it 
to what Paul wrote, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. But what we find is that when people are trying to recreate a gospel, all they are really doing is trying to rebuild a wall that Jesus Christ tore down. When you get to verse 11, I view verse 11 as the real Apostles' Creed. You see how it reads? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just as they will. And so now, Peter finishes his statement. It leads us then to this third significant guideline on how to minister in the midst, in a setting among people where the gospel, the biblical gospel is being challenged, whether by a secularist unbeliever or a religionist unbeliever. But thirdly, when the biblical gospel is being challenged, explain the promise of the gospel wisely. When the Holy Spirit's at work, there's a silence so often that sets in. Sometimes there's a silence that sets into the heart of a person's soul as they're listening to the gospel, where all of a sudden they're saying, yes, this makes sense. It's true. In verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. It's like a holy hush. It set in. Probably could hear a pin drop. And they listened now. Peter's done. Barnabas and Paul stand up. The sequence now has been reversed. Now it's Barnabas and Paul rather than Paul and Barnabas as stated earlier in this chapter. Why? Because in Jerusalem, Barnabas was the one who was so highly respected. He was the one who had basically served as the... Uh, blindside, left tackle for Paul. And now, they listen to Barnabas and Paul as they related to what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. But what God had done, not what they had done for God. Since the humility that is presented when the true gospel is vibrant among us, it's about God. It's all in one verse. But what they're doing is basically summarizing their itinerary of chapters 13 and 14. The physician Luke, who wrote Acts, is in one verse telling us what chapters 13 and 14 were really all about. The signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It seems as though once they take their seats, the one whose epistle will start studying together next week stands up. James. Half-brother of Jesus. James. Leader of the church in Jerusalem. James. 
James waits for this moment, a strategic moment, to bring biblical clarity. His very example here stands forth when he would eventually write, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He waited for this debate to unfold. He's been quick to hear. He's waited for that timely opportunity. He's been slow to speak. He's not allowed for his emotions to overtake him so he doesn't have the words to articulate what needs to be said. He's slow to anger. Here's how you handle the ultimate clashes of life. He smacks authenticity. He replies in verse 13, Brothers, See the connectedness here? Listen to me. Simeon, verse 14, he doesn't call him Peter. In other words, he knows his audience. It's Jewish. So he's going to go by the Jewish name. You've got to know your audience when you share the gospel. Is this a secularist group? Is this a religionist group? A secularist person, a religionist person? Knows who he's talking to. Simeon has related how God, not Simeon, God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And he is, in essence, recounting the story described in Acts 10 and 11 where God had penetrated the mindset of a man by the name of Cornelius, a centurion. And then Peter simultaneously, Simeon, not once, not twice, but three times, receives a revelation, a vision from God. And I'm always fascinated, aren't you, by the way in which God works with Simeon in triplicate form? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? He goes to the empty tomb three days after the crucifixion. And so God has a way of arresting the attention of this one Simeon in the eyes of the Jews. Peter, familiar to you and to me. Simeon had this way of being able to say, oh, God's at work. This isn't coming from me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And throughout the Old Testament, whenever God gave one his name, what he was doing was claiming ownership. Much like when you sign a document, say the purchase of a house. It's the claim of ownership. And God is saying they belong to me, these Gentiles, as well as these Jews, with faith and trust, not in their works, not in their nature, but in Jesus. But here's what he does, and here's how he ministers to the religious unbeliever. 
he goes to what they value, the Scriptures. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. In other words, he will reunite all the tribes of Israel. I will rebuild its ruins. Speaking of the second coming of our Savior. I will restore it. Speaking of that finished future where all things are made new. And then he adds this. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name. We don't see it saying who call upon his name. Here the emphasis is who are called by my name. Ownership being taken, applied, produced by God, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. How far back of old? We're in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Right after, at the Tower of Babel, a tower had been erected where people were trying to make a name for themselves, is the way the Hebrew writings put it. Jesus is spoken of, in essence, in chapter 12, verse 3, through the seed of Abraham, who... Through that seed, Abraham's people will be a blessing to the nations, Jew and Gentile alike. And he uses the scripture to speak to the religious mindset, referencing a Simeon rather than utilizing the name Peter. And he's saying, men, put your wallets back in your pockets. It's been paid. Tip included. Put your faith and trust in the one who paid the price. And you can walk out that door. It's free. It's free. Let's stand together. And there is the beauty and the authenticity of the gospel. free to us but the ultimate price paid by you. So we don't treat it cheaply. We respect it for what it is. Thank you for the great soloist who sung the plan of salvation, the words it is finished. It is Christ alone. There's anyone here in this service, as well in the ones prior and subsequent, who comes spiritually curious. I pray now you will speak to that heart. Show them they cannot add to nor subtract from what Jesus did and put their faith exclusively in Jesus alone for salvation. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name.